outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today in the show, we are continuing with our focus on land improvement and conservation, which we also tackled last week in our Back 40 conversation. And it's on that note that I want to start. Because last spring, when I first started preparing for this whole Back 40 project of sorts, this huge undertaking, you know, I set out to expand the boundaries of of kind of what I know about land improvement and management for wildlife. Because, you know, up to that point, I had a pretty solid understanding of, of projects that could help me get more deer to use a property. I had a pretty good understanding of how to set things up to improve my hunting. But when it came to the bigger picture, when it came to the larger environment, you know, the the soil, the air, the water, the plants, that whole ecosystem within which I was operating and the deer too, that stuff I wasn't so sure about. And we like to talk a lot as hunters that hunting is conservation. And you've heard me talk about this before. I, I love that idea, but it's easy for that to become just an idea and no action. If we depend on hunting being conservation just by default, I worry that we're missing the boat. So I got to thinking, you know, is there more that I could be doing with the land than just killing deer off it and just trying to tweak a property to help me kill even more deer? That was that was this question that I have been asking myself more and more and more. And it led to a whole bunch of reading and research. And that eventually led me down this rabbit hole, which led to the topic of regenerative agriculture. It's this new way of approaching how we manage land and plant crops that could result in not just high quality deer habitat, but also healthier plants and soil and wildlife and cleaner air and water. And this, this seemed like the natural next step and in a perfect new world to dive into, I guess, as I was beginning this whole learning process around the back 40 property. So that's what I did. And it's been about a year since those original explorations. If you've watched the Back 40 series over on the YouTube channel for Meat Eater, or if you've listened to any of the podcasts this fall, you know that I've kind of started this process. I've tried implementing some of these new regenerative ag principles on that property and another farm that I can manage a little bit. And as you might have heard, (laughs) things didn't go the way I hoped they might in a lot of ways. Um, It was tough. 
I had a lot of challenges. I had some failures, but I did learn a lot. And, and that's why this podcast today has me so excited because I feel like I'm ready to learn more. I'm ready to take that next step. It's year two. And helping me to do that today is another dear guy who's been captivated by the opportunity presented by Regenerative Ag and its applications to wildlife management. And that's Jason Snavely. Jason's a wildlife biologist and consultant. He is the host of the Drop Time Podcast. He's a columnist for Peterson's Bow Hunting and just an all-around fascinating guy. He's someone I've followed from afar for a number of years. And recently, I don't know how, how long it's been, maybe the last five years or so, he's dove full bore into this same thing that I'm now just starting to explore, this idea of regenerative agriculture and its applications for deer hunters and managers. And he's gone to a whole new level and started developing a number of resources and seed blends and best practices for those who are looking to implement these types of practices on their own place, trying to improve the soil and the environment and the wildlife health and hunting. So that's what today's episode is all about. I'm excited about it. I'm thrilled that you're here tuning in to hear all about it. So without further ado, let's take a quick break and then get right to my chat with Jason Snavely. But before we do that, two quick things. Number one, I mentioned this whole Back 40 project that uh, we were doing over the last year. If somehow you've been under a rock and you missed that, you got to check it out. We have an eight-part series over on the Meat Eater YouTube channel that documents everything we've done this property so far. The original impetus for the idea, the idea of how can we have a great deer hunting property and a property managed for the whole suite of wildlife, for biodiversity, for a healthier environment, all those things, bees, birds, bucks, everything in between. That series is on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. You got to check it out. It's uh, the most recent episode came out at the end of the year. It's got a whole bunch of hunts. It's got a whole bunch of different things that go on that led up to the hunt and I'm proud of it. So I hope you'll give it a watch. All right. I am excited to have today's guest with me because it's Jason Snavely, and I think we've got a lot to talk about. So welcome to the show, Jason. Hey, Mark. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you inviting me. I'm super excited. I hope you have a long time. Anytime we talk about dirt, man, that's, that's my passion. So I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> Good. Well, uh, this has been something that over the last year or so I've been getting increasingly interested in. So I'm uh, this, this is the time of year that I'm starting to rethink everything that I tried last year and all the things I want to try in different ways this year. So this conversation is perfectly timed. Um, but before we get into the 10,000 different topics I want to pick your brain about and, and, and just I told you this would be about an hour. I'm actually planning on about six hours, so I hope that you don't have anything planned today. I'm okay with that, buddy. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Before we do that, though, for those that aren't uh, aware of who you are or what you do, can you give us the quick rundown of, of kind of your story, how you got to this point, what it is you do in this uh, yeah. hunting world? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, like you said, my name is Jason Snavely. I'm a certified wildlife biologist, and I grew up in Pennsylvania, probably like all the listeners and yourself hunting, fishing, just, you know, craving the outdoors and where a lot of my high school classmates um, struggled with, you know, what in the world would they do with the rest of their lives? It was always just 110% clear that, you know, I, I belong in nature uh, and, and the science and the management part of it, um, you know, not just the killing when I was in high school, but the science and the management part of it really intrigued me. So, Needless to say, I went to uh, Mississippi State University, which at the time and still is 
uh, just absolutely impressive as a university with the, the research, the professors were, you know, best of the best all-star professors in, in all of the species that I was interested in, primarily game species like white-tailed deer, uh, wild turkeys, uh, quail. And I worked on a lot of projects with these animals down there and uh, really just always kept coming back to what is factually the most important, and this is, this is true, this is not just my opinion, but the most important game animal um, economically in the United States is the white-tailed deer. So, you know, white-tail management, ecology, biology just has always intrigued me, always studied, even in high school, the peer-reviewed thick, thick literature on white-tails, just trying to understand the why of all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I, as soon as I graduated, I had done an internship um, in, in South Texas and done some other work. And as soon as I graduated, uh, again, it was clear that, um, you know, I've got this entrepreneurial drive to do this privately, which is really less than 10% of my peers. Uh, most of them are, you know, working for Ducks Unlimited or continuing on in post, uh, post-grad work. And I just, I knew I wanted to work with private landowners, love educating people on this topic. And, uh, you know, I've been doing that since my 19th year. I just, so it's just so, so lucky and fortunate. I just booked up fully for the 2020 year and started booking 2021, which I'm, I'm pleased because in the early stages, my banker looked at me and laughed and, and said, kid, you, you can't get people to pay you to do this. So <laughs> very, very fortunate, um, when it comes to that, but yeah, so, you know, as far as the regenerative part, I don't get going here on a, a tangent. Uh, I can, if you want to jump in there and interrupt me, that's fine. If not, I could kind of tell you how after uh, about 15, 16 years, I, I, I realized one day it's, it's not, uh, it sounds cliche. This isn't a story. It's true. Uh, something just clicked that, that the biologist has missed the biology. Yeah. And that's that this this topic is exactly why I'm particularly excited to chat with you because because I too stumbled on this idea of regenerative agriculture um when I took on the back forty project last year, which which I know you're a little bit familiar with. And so so I've been diving into this, I've been reading books, I've been listening to folks, some of the same people I think that you've been working with, like Gabe Brown. Um but sure. but yeah, tell me the story of how you stumbled on this. And, and why this idea of regenerative wildlife agriculture, which I know you're talking about a lot these days, why that's so exciting to you? Yeah, RWA, regenerative wildlife agriculture, I, you know, I have 90% of my um, consulting visits this year, regenerative wildlife ag and ecosystem restoration is really one of the primary goals. And that just excites me beyond belief. But before I get too far into the story, but I just want to acknowledge you and, and thank you and Steve and the whole Mediator crew and, of course, your podcast. Uh, you know, congratulations, first of all. What an awesome podcast. I record podcasts, you. as you know, and I know what's involved. So to, to crank out as much content, as many episodes as you have, is just, it's just to me, it's just purely awesomeness. Um, thank you. And, you know, the, to give, I appreciate you giving me the platform. You know, this is my 19th season as a consultant, and I have committed 110% after traveling the country and, and really, the, you know, focusing on the globe, what's going on with this. You know, my, initially, I thought it would not work. It's, it's just craziness. 
Um, but so, so thank you for the platform to really push this and promote this. But, you know, just like everybody as, as a deer hunter, deer biologist, um, I didn't grow up a farmer. In fact, you know, we, we were lucky to have a, a sort of a family farm through marriage to hunt about four or 500 acres growing up. Um, but, <laughs> you know, we, we weren't farmers. My dad wasn't a farmer. So I learned how to farm um, after a couple of years of consulting. I was able to buy some of my own property, 100 acres in Pennsylvania. And I learned how to farm from conventional farmers. Now, you know, as we talk about conventional farming, modern farming, by no means am I, you know, slinging mud at them. I've been there. I'm, I'm just as guilty, probably more guilty um, <laughs> at ecosystem destroying management practices as, as most of the farmers are. But Having said that, I you know from from buying the tractor to the tillage equipment to the spraying equipment to fertil to the fertility programs and you know everything I learned from the largest farmer in my county who is is my neighbor. So, you know, for 12, 15 years we were heavy, heavy tillage, um, you know, spraying everything you could imagine. I was a sucker. I, I tease people now about the bug in a jug. Everybody's looking for, you know, the the energy shot for the soil. And the, the quick fix, I was a sucker for that stuff. In fact, my seed company sells um, one of those products, and I encourage people not to buy it. I, it's just I, <laughs> as we get into this a little bit later, you'll find out how we truly fix soil. So, you know, there was one day, I know this sounds cliche, you and I were talking about this earlier, but there was one day, and I can remember it vividly, I, you know, it was about this time of year, it's, you know, probably mid-February, I guess, early February. I rolled out into my uh, one of my fields, and of course, it had been completely devegetated uh, by the deer. And it was probably a primarily a, a brassica type, you know, with some cereals, maybe some legumes. But there was so much naked soil, and these rock boulders that were the size of my head, Mark. I kid you not. Just you know, people ask me what kind of soils I have, and I say it's rock. I don't, <laughs> you know, occasionally I have dirt between the rocks. Right. And I, and I sat there and I looked at this dirt. Um, I, had a, I had a college prof, by the way, in, in soils who would, he would deduct you a significant amount if you use the word dirt. But it is dirt. I hate to break it to him. And there was no life in this dirt. And I hadn't heard at this point about this regenerative egg movement and about soil you know, restoration. But I sat there and I just looked at it. And I remember thinking... I'm failing. There's something, you know, something's not right. And I went back to my office and, you know, one of the things you learn as a, as a field biologist is you learn how to observe. And you mentioned Gabe Brown. Uh, I think Gabe would agree with this 110%. And he, he actually took me to the, thanks to Gabe, I am now, I believe, at the PhD level of just pure observation between Gabe and Dr. Fred Provenza. But when you go out and you just observe nature, you use your eyes, you use your ears, you, you, know, you touch things, you smell things. And it's funny, I was watching your back 40 and you guys were, were birding. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you go out on one of my client properties who has been under RWA for three years, your ears can just they hear things you've never heard. And you could, you could have grown up in that habitat. And you notice things that just look different. So... I'm going to try to cut back on this part, but this is really what, this was the catalyst that launched me into this, this questioning of, you know, what, what, 
what are we doing wrong? Why, why do my soils look so dead? Why are they uh, like a drug addict, so addicted to me constantly dumping synthetic commercial fertilizers into them? So that, that's really what started me on this path. And then, of course, me being research type, um, I, I was talking to people from Australia and South Africa, and of course, you know, Gabe and Ray Archuleta, Alan Williams, um, you know, Rick Haney, the whole. The whole crew. <laughs> so, so tell me this then, because here's, like, I I came to this with a bigger picture goal because I was taking on this project and I knew we wanted to try to approach our our habitat management and our deer management in, in a different way than usual that would be more beneficial to the whole ecosystem. And so I was kind of proactively seeking out these different ideas. But your average deer hunter out there, your average guy or girl that's got a little spot they hunt, and they're they're kind of, at least at the outset, they're wanting better deer hunting. And then maybe they want mm-hmm. bigger deer, older deer, healthier deer. And maybe if we get really lucky, they do that long enough, then they realize, you know, wow, as I've gotten involved in some of this management, I've learned that I'm I can help improve and, and, and benefit so many other aspects of this property and the ecosystem. So, so you might get to that Absolutely. bigger picture view of things, which, which I feel like the longer you do this, the more you start to get drawn down that path. And that's, that's, it's a fun thing. It's a fulfilling thing. But I, I know there's people listening right now that are thinking, mm-hmm. why should I care about dirt or soil that much? I, I'm listening to this podcast because I just wanted to, you know, Make my my property better for shooting deer, whatever it might be. So, so what? Let's start at the ground level. As far as why does this conversation matter uh, to people that are approaching this from a deer hunting perspective? And then I want to dive into all the hows and whys and and the deeper aspects <laughs> too. But but let's just lay a quick yeah. groundwork. How how can this conversation help that hunter? Man, you're you're sharp. I was saving the good stuff for the end, but you make a good <laughs> point. Um, you know, a lot of people think that I work only with professional athletes and entrepreneurs and people who have thousands of acres, and that's just not true. Um, you can improve, you know, your 40, your 40 or 63 acres, whatever it is in, in southeastern Michigan. You know, that, that's a that's a, a fairly large chunk of property. Um, you can improve a very, very small acre or less piece of property and kill more whitetails than most guys who are just, you know, recklessly quote unquote, managing 500 acres. So that's a great question. And, and, and it's the question that I asked, you know, my, my initial path down regenerative ag or restoring the ecosystem really wasn't meant for my clients. I'll, I'll be selfish here. It was, I was looking at my own dirt and, you know, as I got down this path, I can remember thinking to myself, how is the average guy who, who really just wants a uh, target rich environment, right? Um, and to see a lot of whitetails and preferably mature whitetails from the stand or on the stalk, how is he going to care about all this? So for the first year or two, I was really kind of hushed about it, traveled to some soil conferences and, you know, of course, talked to Gabe and a lot of those guys. And as I started to hear how their properties progressed ecologically, I got excited because I realized that this is the next step in managing a property. So let me give you an example. When I started, 
I mentioned my banker laughing at me, telling me I'd never pay the bills. Um, you know, in, as a wildlife consultant, I knew immediately that I would have to constantly strive to find as many tools and techniques, as we call them as in the wildlife world, to help my clients become this island, right? This, this sort of um, unique outlier in their neighborhood. And, and it could be anything, maintaining an open mind, um, just constantly strive to make it better, whether it was, you know, managing with, with bullets and arrows or managing the habitat, crushing the brush, um, human behavior, hunter behavior, those sorts of things. The more I got into regenerating my own ecosystem, my own farm, the more I realized this is for everyone. And let me give you an example. Uh, we, we love turkey hunt. We love growing deer. And don't get me wrong, we love to shoot deer, but turkey hunting for my, myself and my son anyway, is, is our, it's our thing. Uh, he completed his turkey slam at eight. He's just ate up with, with calling and, and shooting turkeys. In 2010, when my daughter was born, I have the last trail cam clips, video clips of turkey poults on my property. Now, we would get long beards every year, you know, coming and going. So we would, he would kill, you know, a long beard or two a year and everything was good. Um, but we weren't seeing any poults. And this concerned me, obviously, as a biologist. And it just, it puzzled me. You know, so I looked into all of these, you know, is it the, the poultry manure, the poultry litter? Is it the pesticides? Is it the herbicide? What is it? After the third year of, of my regenerative uh, ag, adventure, I realized that my last step, I've gone no-till, getting rid of synthetic fertilizers is so, so very easy. It's crazy. But I was, I was still, you mentioned the word weed, which I, I try not to use that word anymore. We'll get into that more. It's a plant. I was, I was relying on using selective herbicides to maintain these beautiful plots because of the pressure primarily that clients come visit me. And if a guy comes to the contractor's house, he doesn't want to see moldboard missing. Uh, he doesn't want to see trim, you know, crooked or, or right. nails halfway up. So I always felt this pressure to maintain this uh, hyper manicured property. But then I realized from, from Gabe and some others that, wow, these, these herbicides are registered as biocides, as antibiotics. So I cut them out. I filled my sprayer with the pink RV, uh, RV juice and it just committed. And that pink juice still sits in there today. After, I'm not kidding you, one full season of doing this, a friend of mine and I were riding around on the Ranger and we flushed three turkey hens with, I believe it was six or seven poults. And let me tell you something, I realize most of your listeners see that on a regular basis, but we're in a heavily intensive ag area. Um, spraying, deep cultivation, just, just typical conventional egg. We hadn't seen poults in years, uh, oh. nine years, 10 years. And so when I flushed these birds, I thought to myself, I wonder if there is something going on here that the wildlife, as Gabe told me day one, when I said, I can't sell this to a guy, Gabe, who's paying me to come produce a target-rich environment. It's not going to work. And he said, explain to me why, this, why the state agency has called me, asking me why deer, radio colored deer, are traveling over 50 miles to get to my non-GMO corn. When, and these are mature bucks. When it doesn't make any sense hmm. as a prey species 
to travel that far to consume a grain that covers the landscape in that that part of the country. So, you know, that to answer your question, I, I was the very first skeptic when I thought about selling this to my clients. I thought, man, you're going to sell yourself out of a job. And you know, the neat thing is, I have found that that clients, people who buy property have this vested interest, as you now know, with your Bag 40 project. We want to, we, we want to do good. We just, we want to do good for everything. And I've been absolutely astonished by the number of clients and the new clients who call, text, email constantly. And they're trying to understand things like our buscular mycorrhizal fungi and how, you know, soil microbes mediate pH. I mean, these are guys who own businesses, you know, they're, they're, they're linemen with the local power company. This isn't their work, right? This crazy sciencey stuff is not their world. And, you know, so people are just ate up with it. So absolutely optimistic that this can work on even those managing a garden. Definitely. It is. Soil is the, it's, it's the building block of everything, right? That's where all of this starts. The soil is the foundation of the house. And then you're putting up walls, which are various plants that are growing on top of that soil within that soil. And then the deer and the turkeys are feeding on on the plant life or the bug life that's living within that ecosystem. And then we're feeding on the deer and it, it's, it is all connected, but it has to start there in many cases with the soil. And, and, and you talked about how it's not, well, there's this difference between dirt in soil. Um, and sure. I've talked about this a little bit, but I'd love to kind of hear your take on it. Can you just talk about what mm-hmm. healthy soil looks like? I mean, uh, I'll, I'll add one oh, more thing. Oh, buddy. One I more, hope you have all day. <laughs> one more thing I'll <laughs> add is that I know one of the interesting visual representations you can take a look at if you just care about deer. If you take a look at the map of the United States and you map out where the highest Boone and Crockett you know, uh, density of bucks is taken, you're going to see a pretty close match to where the highest quality quality soils are in the United States, right? You've probably seen that map that the QDMA put out some number of years ago. Sure. I don't think it's a accident that bigger deer tend to be where better soil is. Now, that's not mm-hmm. the only reason why we're doing this, but I just wanted to lay that out as one thing as like a a little carrot. If you are excited about seeing bigger deer or older deer, good soil is good for that. Good soil is important for so many other things too. And I want to understand what that looks like and how we achieve that, Jason. Tell me a little bit more about yeah, soil. Yeah, that's good. You know, that's a great, that's a great point. I'm glad you hit that. Um, t- two things come to mind real quick. Uh, number one, I, <laughs> I had synthetic fertilizer salesmen telling me as I, you know, we had clients cancel on seven, $10,000 orders, um, you know, just left and right. My fertilizer salesman was just off the hook, crazy, calling me and you know, threatening my clients that I was going to destroy the deer herd that he built. Right? He built the deer herd with his synthetic fertilizer. But you know, after three or four years of going down the regenerative path on my small, you know, back forty, if you will, which is only ninety-eight acres, uh, <laughs> I'm here to tell you, we 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 kill what we call. You've heard investors talk about OPM, other people's money. There's nothing better to invest in other people's money, right? <laughs> yeah. A lot of pressure, you know, it really is a lot of pressure, but still we, we like to kill as me and my kids laugh. We like to kill OPB, other people's bucks. <laughs> I, like that. I don't want to watch a buck all summer, eat my groceries 
and then have him wander up the road and get shot. I'll be honest with you. That's just uh, that, that, <laughs> that my livelihood depends on me fighting that. So we have seen after creating this, well, I'll get into this here in a minute, but after creating and regenerating the ecosystem on my farm, and that's everything from the insects, the honeybees, the, you know, just focusing on the biology of the soil, just the entire ecosystem. We have seen more deer that we also call welfare deer. These are deer that I could kill 50 does a year, right? But I was trained as a biologist. You have to kill does, kill does, maintain a balanced sex ratio. Mm-hmm. That's all great in a textbook and on a property that's completely dysfunctional and degraded. But when you're an island and you've developed something special, you get deer, bucks, does, fawns coming from miles and miles. And my son shot a, uh, a five and a half year old 10 point this year, which uh, I, I'm not joking when I say this. My 13 year old son, my nine year old daughter, said to me, dad, this year, they said, dad, this is getting too easy. <laughs> now, the reason I tell you that is not to toot my own horn or stroke myself, but it's because when I started with this regen thing, I would sit out there in the field and just struggle, forehead to palm saying, gosh, I, you know, my kids have killed bucks every year. We're proud of that. Mature bucks, three and a half, four and a half pluses with some five and six year olds on 95 acres in a heavily intact, you know, heavily hunted state. With neighbors that, yes, they believe it's, you know, if it's brown, it's down. There's no special thing going on here in Columbia County, Pennsylvania. They're all the same. And I thought, this is going to end it. Am I, am I really primarily focused on soil health so much that I'm going to give up this incredible hunting on this property? But I decided to go for it, go all in. And my kids sat there this year just shaking their heads. And I warned them before the season, the guys, things are going to look different. You may not even see a deer. This may be the year. I just want you to understand that. And they were they were okay with that. As we said, the first thing they said when they climbed up, they like came. They said, Dad, what am I looking at? It looks like a jungle. What have you done with this once forage soybean field? So, you know, I'm going down that path before clients just to make sure. But I'm here to tell you that the deer know it. Um, if you ever studied Dr. Fred Prevence's work, he's just an amazing human being. And his nutritional wisdom, which I'd like to get into if we have time, um, I, I believe firmly in the nutrient density of plants can draw deer from, from miles away. So just wanted to inject that real quick. But I'll, I'll, get, I'll get into what soil is if everybody hasn't fallen asleep yet. Uh, do you want to wake them up real quick before no, I do no, this? No, jump into it. They're, they're listening. <laughs> they're listening because, because this so stuff, this is, it's tactical and in, in, in it's also – philosophical in a way too. I think that you can approach this conversation we're having from a tactical standpoint, like how this is going to help you better hunting. And I think there's also myself and some people that are listening to this from like a philosophical standpoint, which is how do you do right by the (laughs) land? And I think what's cool about this conversation is you can achieve both those things. So that's why I'm awake at least. That's right. That's right. And I'm taking a drink of water and and I just want you to know I'm sitting on the edge of my chair. I'm I'm so excited when I talk about this stuff. So, so soil, this is where the transition changes. It's a paradigm shift. It's a mental change in what dirt is, okay? Let's focus on what soil is. Soil is this living, breathing, fully functioning ecosystem, okay? It's, it's not just this uh, plant-growing medium where you dump fertilizer in, like, like I once thought, right? 
where you just dump fertilizer in, you put a little bit of water in there, and you make sure the sun's shining on it. That that's how you do it. No. And you know, most of what we currently know in practice right now regarding growing plants centers around how plants respond to synthetic inputs applied to dysfunctional soils. So when someone tells me, hey Jay, you're wrong, this bug in the jug works, I say, that's great. And you're completely degraded soils, but it won't work in my fully functioning, biologically active soils. So once we start to look at soils as a biological system, things change. And this is what changed for me. And obviously I'm a wildlife biologist. So this is why I think um, so many clients uh, ask me at dinner, Jay, why have you get, why have you grabbed onto this? this so you know, like you're crazy about this stuff. You've forgotten about any point restrictions and managing sex ratios and age structure and estimating live white-tailed deer on the hoof and chronic wasting disease and all this very important stuff. And I have not, but there's nothing that has impacted in 19 years the property. And we're only four, three, four years into this, the properties that I manage, small and large, and regenerative wildlife agriculture. So when we start to look at the soils this way, we understand, you know, there's this big term biomimicry. I don't know if you've heard this yet in your your research on, on region I, but biomimicry, and I think of my good friend in Texas, Dr. Rick Haney, I'll be with Rick next week um, in, at Soil Health U in Salina, Kansas, but, you know, biomimicry is really what we're doing. We're farming in nature's image. So instead of imposing our will on nature and working against nature, i.e. pesticides, chemicals, herbicides, tillage, uh, all the stuff that we'll talk about here soon, we look at nature and observe. There's that observe again. And we utilize, we kind of work with nature. So, you know, one of the things that Gabe told me up front, you've probably heard Gabe say this, and it had a huge impact on me. He said, Jason, your farm is a direct reflection of you. And I thought to myself, oh, that's, that's not good. You know, I'm looking at completely naked soil, dead. They're not, there's no life in them. Wow. And, and, you know, I went through a series of, of some health issues <clears throat> simply because I work a lot. My immune system had uh, deteriorated. And, I, I, you know, I, of course, I get bit by ticks all over North America. So, you know, we blame it on Lyme disease and associated tick-borne illness. But I think it's probably the diet when you're in an airport and the whole nine yards. But it started to click to me that, hey, wait a minute. I learned about all this stuff with the gut, my gut biology yeah. making me healthy and fit. This makes sense. So let, let me throw something out there. You know, everybody likes statistics, right? Um, you know, over 95%, when I tell clients this, they're, they don't believe me, but over 95% of land, life on land, resides beneath our boots in the soil. 95%. And if you ever follow Dr. Christine Jones, you should. She once said, and I love this quote from her. She said, we're, and I'm, I'm kind of doing off the, the top of my head. So, but she said something about we're standing on the rooftop of another world. And all of that stuff kind of came back to me and, and, you know, from different avenues. And I thought, wow, if there's this much biology in the soil, why are we spending all of our time managing the biology above the soil, worrying about these things, sex ratio, the whole nine yards, recruitment rates? but we're killing the life in the soil. And that's when the six principles of soil health, many of you may know them as the five. Um, I think everybody has accepted this sixth one as, as context. And we can talk about that here in a little bit, but 
that's when these principles of soil health and regenerative ag kind of came in. So again, when you look at soils as this living, breathing, fully functioning ecosystem, it will be easy for you to give up the synthetic fertilizers. It will be much easier for you to give up the caustic chemicals, the pesticides, the insecticides, the herbicides. Let's talk about those principles of soil health because if we're if we're accepting the premise that having healthy soil is going to help our wildlife, our deer, and then subsequently our hunting, uh, tell me what the principles of soil health are that we are shooting for. Yeah, and I, and I think you know maybe I'll fly over these. But I think everybody has probably heard these by now, but for those who haven't, you know you'll hear it oftentimes as the five principles of uh, regenerating the soil ecosystem or restoring the soil ecosystem. And number one really just hits this disturbance thing, this limiting disturbance, and that could be chemical or physical. So, you know, most of us think and talk about a tillage, you know, running a plow through soil. That's a major, major destructive disturbance. And then chemical disturbance, you know, anything that obviously we put into our sprayer, I'm not teasing you, but I kind of am. I was watching the back 40 this morning and I saw that sprayer spraying yeah, something on Yeah, the- we, we use it a little. <laughs> I also heard Steve mention uh, plow it up, which, man, that was me at one time, too. Um, and by the way, though, for those of you who say that you'd like to plow the dirt because you like to smell it, if you've ever smelled a good soil, I mean, a David Brandt from Ohio, no-tiller since the 70s, Gabe Brown, when you smell a really good soil, you'll change your mind real quick. So anyway, limit disturbance. The second one I think I have found to be so positively impactful, which is armor the soil. So when you build soil armor, you do so many things. Number one, you, you cover it with plant residue, which obviously recycles those in, in, I mean, those organic infield nutrients right back into your system. But you smother and cover weed seeds, essentially aiding your reliance. Extremely important. Obviously, you you know minimize or eliminate soil erosion. Um, you, you provide habitat. When you cover your soil uh, with, with a grass, let's say a sorghum Sudan grass or, or a, a cereal rye, you provide an, a massive amount of habitat for the bugs, the, the, the biology, both macro and micro uh, biology in your soils. And then moving on, diversity. And this one here caused me, you know, I'm deeply rooted in the food plot industry, um, have been since the beginning. Uh, it, it changed the way I completely changed the way I look at at uh, wildlife agriculture. So diversity means offering uh, the major plant types, grasses, forbs, legumes, brassicas, all in one area. And uh, that that just the, the way that the different plant types offer species symbio- symbiotic relationships is just it blows your mind. Um, and then living roots. So you know, we think of um, most of the time that we have this growing season and then we have this dormant season. Well, that's just not true. You know, cereal rye can germinate in negative degree temps. It can, you know, it's root active all winter long. Um, you know, so we want to maintain this living root in the soil year round. You can't do that with tillage. <clears throat> you can't do that by spraying caustic herbicides. Um you know, and and people don't realize if we talk about uh, soil organic matter, you know, 70% of soil organic matter comes from the roots, not the above ground plant. 
<clears throat> excuse me. So, so the fifth one is animal integration. Now for the grazers and those guys and the cattlemen, this one's so simple. You know, I, I gave T this man, I always talk to Gabe and I said, Gabe, I'll never get my soils to the point that you have them because I'm not a cowboy. I'm a deer guy. If I, I can't, I can't manage cattle. I travel too much. I love cattle. I love bison. And I'm still not committed to not getting them. I want them in the worst way, but the management and the logistics uh, is, is a bit of a hurdle right now at this stage of my life. But when you integrate animals, <laughs> you know, the stomping, the trampling, the dung, the urine, the drool, when they nip a plant off and they drool, the, just the stimulation of the biology in the soil is, is way more than we understand at this point. But you know what? It's not a bad thing, this, this animal integration thing, because when you throw the sixth principle, which is context, I start to realize, hey, wait a minute. I do have animals integrated into my system. And actually, I think I have more animals in the form of wildlife integrated in my system than Gabe does to his. His may be huge cattle that are obvious on the landscape when you see them walking around. But, you know, I've got deer. And, you know, recently that this context and in animal integration just has a real quick side point. Uh, as soon as the season ends here, of course, we don't put corn out or any grains out uh, during the season. But as soon as the season ends or we've committed to no longer hunting, I'll go out and I'll, I'll supplement some grains, non-GMO grains, on different fields. And I've got it set up so that I can move either the feeder or I'll use a spreader and, and I'll super hyper-focus high densities of deer. I'm talking, you know, some of my peers will kill me when I hear this, but I've had my cameraman tell me he counted 99 and lost track. Um, all consuming plants and, of course, supplemental grain in a, a one or two acre area. Now, I can already hear the CWD guys and all the same people who have helped um, cause chronic wasting disease behind, you know, uh, research enclosures. Uh, but, you no, know, whitetails are social animals. And I'm not uh, I'm not concerned with that at all. But when you look at the trampling of all of these deer and the dung and obviously the urine and the browse, that's animal integration at its finest. So those are the six. Um, and I kind of I went over them super fast. I know it sounded like I didn't, but if someone were to staple those up on their their bulletin board and uh, you know, really ask themselves before they go out and do something in their food plots or in their ag fields, am I falling under one of these six now or am I breaking the rules? Uh, I think that's a, a pretty good guiding uh, set of principles. Yeah. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. 
So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. And so, and so like I alluded to earlier, I, I discovered these ideas last year and so decided, all right, I'm going to try this. I'm going to start to try this at least. So what I did, uh, and I did this on the back 40 property and then one other property that I have uh, the ability to do some planting on, um, I was able to get my hands on a no-till drill from RTP Outdoors. So for the first time ever, I got to use a no-till drill. For the first Mm -hmm. time ever, I uh, planted blends of species rather than monocultures of species. And I planted things that would allow me to next year, hopefully not need to use herbicides the way I would typically. So this year, at least from conversations I've had with some other folks like Grant Woods, they said kind of to start it, you might still need to kill off the initial weeds, but then you can start this rotation. So I, I planted things. So, so yeah, maybe you can tell me how to do it otherwise, but that's what I tried this past year is I, I used some herbicide the first time because we're in a brand new place with a bunch of invasive mare's tail, was able to get some stuff planted that, uh, that hopefully with the blend we plan next year, I'll have some cereal, rye that'll be coming up in the spring. And, and then you start this rotation when we, we talked about this last year, a little bit in the podcast where you can have this cover crop essentially in place that controls weeds the following year so that you can then plant what you want over top of mm-hmm. that once you terminate with a crimper or something like that. Um, now, now all this to say, so I use a no-till drill. I reduced how much fertilizer I was putting down. Hopefully, eventually, I'll be able to Good. completely remove that and have a rotation hopefully in place now where I don't need to use herbicide next year, and I plan mm-hmm. the diversity. So here's what happened, though. So I tried all that. What I got... <laughs> What I got was my worst food plot year I think I've had yet. Now no, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to say. I want to qualify that. I'll qualify that. Um, <laughs> simply by fact of it was different than what I've had in past years, and I think a lot of it mm-hmm. is simply in the execution. Right? I've never done it this way before. I've never used a no-till drill before. Um, I'm, I guarantee I didn't calibrate it exactly the right way. I guarantee I probably sure. got depths sure. wrong or I got, there's all these little things I just don't know how to do quite yet because it's just different from what I've done. Learning curve. Yeah. Exactly. So what I ended up with in the biggest area this this showed up was on the back 40 
I tried to plant this diverse blend of species and I got almost none of that diversity come up. I, I mostly got just uh, oats and some other cereal grains like that coming up. I got very little of the other species showing up, at least that first, you know, that first growing season in the fall. Um, not nearly the growth I would expect. Um, didn't get the drawing power I was hoping for, all of these things. And on my other farm, I got it was definitely better. But didn't get as much of the brassicas that I typically would get when I'm planting, you know, of course, monocultures of brassicas versus this <laughs> blend. So I didn't get the mid to late season attraction that I usually do. So all this to say, I tried things. It didn't turn out exactly the way I thought it would. But I realized there's a lot of different factors going in. So what I'm, I bring all this up to ask you, what are some of the common what, is this to be expected the first year you're going to have some challenges like that? What are some Absolutely. things that typically happen? What what should I be thinking about at this point? Yeah, so I'm taking notes now um, because you just you you nailed it. You hammered it right there. So first of all, this is a process, right? Um, I've seen you in the videos. You're a pretty fit guy. I know uh, Steve's the same way. You know, eat good, exercise. Uh, you know, we all like to hunt, so you have to stay in shape for that. That's a process, right? It, yeah. it doesn't happen overnight. So, uh, you know, Gabe, I hate to keep bringing up Gabe because his head's big enough, but Gabe, <laughs> Gabe has the best quote, and you can YouTube it. Um, I can't think of what video it is, but, uh, Jeez, um, you can YouTube it, and, and this the, the, his quote goes something like this: Before you head down the regenerative egg path, you need to reach down into your drawers and find out if you have a pair. <laughs> and nice. I think it was, jeez, um, Lance Plessig. I, I can't remember. I can't remember whose video it was in, but that, so, so I'm telling you, I'm challenging you as friends in the. Uh, uh, Regen Ag World did to me, and as I do to my clients, do that. Reach down in and say, "Do I really have a set or does all just this just sound cool and sexy yeah. on YouTube?" Yes. You know, and and I think you know, obviously you've got this passion and this drive for it. So so that was my slap. Now I'll stroke you a little bit and I'll say, "Listen, <laughs> you you didn't think you did a good job, and I'm going to disagree with you. I think you did a perfect job. You did a fine job, and and beyond that." you are learning how to observe and read nature. So, you know, <laughs> I hate to keep going back to my Lyme disease, but I went to a Lyme specialist and said, buddy, I've got a lot of work to do, a lot of consulting to do. I got to make money. I got to pay for properties. Fix me now. And he said, sure, here, I'll write you this script. That script will kill all your gut bacteria. And he did it. And he, he wanted me to stay on antibiotics, uh, you know, for two, three years until my symptoms went away. And uh, and, and they, they, some of them did. Hell, my joints felt great. I was running half marathons, killing sheep. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I can't eat anything because my gut is dead. There's no gut bacteria left. So you're going from a heroic system to now what I do is I focus on herbs, focus on my exercise, my diet, focus on exercise. It's a much more difficult, lengthier process, right? You went the heroic route before, like I did. You spray herbicides, you kill everything. I used to yeah. say to people, I want it to look like, you know, I want NASA to look down from space and say, what the hell is that guy <laughs> doing over there? Man, he's killed everything. Yeah. I thought it was cute to start planting my forward soybeans 
you know, on essentially a basketball court so I could produce six and a half foot tall beans and look like a hero, right? So you did fine. Now, what you're seeing and what you're observing as these grasses come up, you, you could plant a 29-way blend of cereals, which are grasses, by the way, uh, legumes, clovers, you know, peas, beans, uh, brassicas, forbs like chicory, plantain, and your soil may only kick out three or four of those. That's not a failure. That's a success. And that, that, is, that reads to me like a book. So what your soil is saying is my carbon to nitrogen ratio, do a little bit of research. Obviously, we don't have a lot of time to, to discuss this, but the carbon to nitrogen ratio is way out of whack. And, you know, this, this sort of gets back to the, the food plot industry that I got heavily into, you know, since the 80s. You, you can probably name the companies, you know, they still fight over who was the first one to grow the, the most genetically improved quote unquote deer clover, which cracks me up. But, you know, we, we've been pumping so much nitrogen into the soil with legumes that we are providing the perfect environment for weeds to invade. Now, again, none of us are perfect farmers. So we have skips and voids in our plots and mother nature's, you know, first defense to a scar is to throw a plant there yeah so you know here we are we're, we're, and i'm sure you've heard of guys fertilizing their, their clover plots so that's mm -hmm. even worse we're leaving bare soils which allow for the infestation of weeds that we hate and then we're spraying them with caustic chemicals further destroying the biology and the system so you're when you throw diversity i love it I don't, you know, diversity is relative, I'm finding. I like, you know, 15, 16, 17 different species um, in a species complementary kind of a way. Uh, you, you know, there's this research now that's it's pretty thick. It's, it's called quorum sensing. And what they're starting to find out is really above the seven, eight, nine um, different species. It's almost like a meeting, right? If, if you have, if you sit on the board, um, maybe of a nonprofit and you have to have a quorum and only two guys show up, well, you don't get much done. And what the, what these microbiologists are finding out is once there's a certain amount or number of species, the biology is super active and things just click. So I like what you did. Let me see if I got all my notes in your, um, I think you did perfectly fine. You said you didn't get the growth that you wanted, well, I think you also said you, you cut back on your fertilizer, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is not an overnight accomplishment. So let, let's talk about, if you're okay with that, this yeah. negative impact of synthetic fertilizers. I, 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 man, my, my, my fertilizer sales guy, I don't get free hats anymore. I don't get tickets <laughs> to the baseball games. I get nothing. He's going to hate it when he hears this, but we have become so dependent on commercial fertilizers that our soils, including mine, mine's a recovering crack addict. Yours is a recovering crack addict. Yeah. And as you drive, I'm sure, in all the country roads where you live, you will see soils that are highly dependent on synthetic fertilizers. Now, here's the cool thing about this fertilizer topic, right? And I'm sorry if this gets nerdy, but I'm going to try to make it as like I talk to my clients as hunter friendly as possible, but nature is full 
of these synergies, parallels, and deep interconnections. It really is. And that's one of my favorite things because people look at me funny, cross-eyed when I say that. I'll repeat it. Nature's full of synergies, parallels, and deep interconnections. So what I mean by that is, so everybody has, you know, we recall from sixth or seventh grade science the way photosynthesis works, right? And I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll spare you all the C6H1206 BS, and I'll just say you have these plants with this green chlorophyll, right, which collect sun, combine that with CO2, carbon dioxide. You hear about CO2 emissions. Well, I'm here to tell you nobody's doing more for CO2 emissions than the Regen Ag people, period. And that includes the folks who have a lot of cows, a lot of cattle. And then a little bit of H2O, right? And, you know, that sort of um, mixture, if you will. Uh, we always hear about this from sixth grade science on. It produces this life-supporting oxygen, right? That's all, yeah. that's all we've ever been taught, that, that photosynthesis produces oxygen. So plant a tree. Well, that's cool for those of us who like to breathe. I agree. <laughs> but, but the most important thing in my mind that results a byproduct in photosynthesis is carbon. And I'm sure you've heard of carbon in your research and regen ag, but carbon exudes. So, so the term exodus scares a lot of people, but basically the leaves, or I'm sorry, the roots of plants leak liquid carbon, which is a sugar. And it's much more difficult than this, but this makes good sense. So when they leak this sugar, the biology in the soil gets super excited and eat it. So it's this symbiotic relationship that, believe it or not, went on before we got here and started liming, fertilizing, tilling, and destroying soils. But this super friendly um, symbiotic relationship that's been parallel and worked very well for you know who knows how long is now being disrupted, right? It's being disrupted in that we are dumping we're outsourcing. I've, I've heard a term this way, and this makes sense to me. We're outsourcing the job and the relationship of plants and biology. So, for instance, if we dump a bunch of soluble, soluble phosphorus fertilizer in the ground, the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, this, this, the microbes that attach to the soil roots that, that sort of have this symbiotic relationship, are no longer needed. Right? We, we don't need them anymore. The plant doesn't need them anymore. So they don't form this as your, your let's say your uh, soybean plant is germinating. It's using all of this phosphorus to grow and it doesn't need the microbes. It kind of shuns it. The microbes go eat carbon, which is a very bad thing, and they consume the existing carbon. And then the plant continues to grow, continues to grow, and then we leave the field, right? We're out bass fishing. And the plant says, oh, crap, you gave me all this nitrogen that your fertilizer guy told you to apply right, you know, right when you planted it. But what he didn't tell you is that I need more nitrogen later on in my life, my, my growth cycle, right? And, you know, all of this nitrogen has now either been consumed by plants or leached through the system down to the gulf in the dead zone, which mm-hmm. they don't appreciate at all. Um, so so you, there's no relationship now between plant and mycorrhizal fungi so the plant says hey mycorrhizal fungi i kind of need you right now you know here's some carbon bring me some some phosphorus and and they don't have this relationship it's too late you see plants that look horrible and what's the fertilizer guy tell you to do put more down Mm -hmm. well it's too late so so there's some really good data 
it's only 70 years worth of data. My good friend Rick Haney loves that comment. It's only 70 years worth of data <laughs> um, that people argue with all the time that has shown approximately 50% of the nitrogen fertilizer that you apply. I, I, would, I would even venture to guess 50% of any commercial synthetic fertilizer that you apply is wasted regardless of pH, regardless of form and how you apply it. It's gone. It leaches through the system. And it ends up in our in our water systems. So, you know that that the, this whole idea that we think we can go. Oh, wait a minute! If if this guy says there's biology in my soil that's going to go get the nutrients and bring them to the plants in exchange for this liquid carbon, cool. I'll just stop paying the fertilizer bill. The wife's going to be tickled pink, <laughs> and everything's going to look great. And then he, then he calls me up. He goes, Hey Jay, I got a problem. My food plots look like crap. Mm -hmm. They're stunted. And you know, I'm just not seeing the deer I was seeing. Well, it's it's not a you're looking at a completely degenerated, defunct dead system. So the quicker my my the way I look at it, I'm I you know, I'm not gonna be here uh, for forever. So I wanna work as quick as I can. If I have to sacrifice a little bit for a couple of years, that's fine. The more of these principles I can follow and the quicker I can rebuild the biology in my soils, the well, the more valuable my land will be, obviously, to future generations, but you know, the, the healthier my soils will be. And you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm listening to you. It's funny because I've heard that from dozens of clients, um, but it, it just takes a little bit of patience. And uh, trust me. After about the second or third year, the drawing power is, is to a point where your kids say, this is too easy, Dad. And you start to think, we have, we've only killed two does in um, 2006, 13, 14 years here, uh, which is completely against everything I've been taught as a, as a wildlife biologist. We've killed two does. But we are now, after regen, to the point where we, we're going to have to kill some does. Um, just because we're we're overrun with deer. So so, you say it takes a couple of years for things to get on track once you pull out that synthetic fertilizer. Now I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's because a few things. Number one, once you remove the the kind of steroid, you then get the mm -hmm. natural relationship that you just talked about. That natural relationship begins to strengthen and it gets better and better every year. And then you are not ripping up the soil anymore because you're going to go a no-till approach. So you're not destroying those relationships in that biology. Right. And so that gets better. You're sure. also leaving vegetation on top of the surface and that becomes organic matter, which then feeds the soil and provides natural fertilizer. And then you have this diverse uh, array of different plant life that you keep growing all year round, which have kind of symbiotic relationships too, where one plant's fixing nitrogen and other one's using nitrogen. They're doing this with all sorts of types of nutrients. Is that basically how you replace the fertilizer, right? That system in place essentially creates a natural fer fertilizing system. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and the way you put it is phenomenal. And I'll, I'll say that you're, you're eliminating a group of things and then you're adding something that, that's a great segue, by the way, you're adding something that is vitally important. Uh, it's the most important tool in our toolbox for regenerating soil. So we're eliminating the tillage, we're eliminating all of the disturbances, and we're doing everything you just said. 
But what we're adding is of most of utmost importance, and that is plants. We fix soils with plants. Dr. Rick Haney, uh, I don't know if he was the first to say this, but he's known for his short and impactful comments and quotes. He'll say all the time, plants fix dirt. And I, to the point that I made a t-shirt, sent it to him uh, with drop sign on the front and plants fix dirt on the back. And, you know, it, every time as I was learning about this process, I'd call him up and say, hey, Rick, what about biochar? And, you know, what about this particular bug in a chug? You know, what, what if I did this? Can I spray these micros and get there quicker? He would just laugh and in his, in his oaky hybrid Texas drawl say, plants fix dirt, dummy. Stop thinking so much and just plant plants. So this led to, so, so I want to I wanna make sure I drive that home, is a live plant is the most potent tool with which we can build health, healthy soils. So you know, photosynthesis, without that bright thing in the sky, that sun, none of this would be possible. So photosynthesis drives it, right? Kicks off this carbon, liquid carbon, sugar, off the roots. And that carbon is the currency, if you will, of the soil economic system. So that carbon is traded for everything a plant needs. So, yes, you're absolutely dead on. But I want people to understand when they see all of the the marketing and the advertising, and and then that includes me. I think I threw myself under the bus um, with our nitro, you know, big fan of some things in the past. Uh, Seaweeds offer incredible health, both humans and wildlife, but uh, plants fix dirt. So, you know, when the energy flows from the sun through the soil, you really can't have healthy soil um, without plants. And and that's what uh, sort of led me down this path of what I call relay intercropping or pasture cropping. I didn't make up either of those terms. They're just not really used in uh, North American agriculture, um, but this, well, they're starting to get here. Relay intercropping and pasture cropping, I think, are just the coolest thing for, for wildlife managers. All right. So so what does that mean? How does that apply to what we're trying to do with uh, wildlife management and, and habitat? Yeah, so so I was first introduced to this pasture cropping um, gentleman, and look him up, Colin Seath in um, Australia. He would take these perennial pastures and he would say, okay, if these pastures are going dormant during the um, uh, off-season, the non-growing season, what if I plant a cereal grain, for instance, uh, wheat, like, like you mentioned, planting your cereal rye, and I harvest, I actually harvest a crop out of this pasture. In the spring, and that that got me thinking, as, as I was mentioning context, how can that apply to wildlife? Well, where that fit with my programs is we were looking to no longer use the plow and the disc and whatever my clients have manufactured. It blows my mind the stuff they make on their own to to destroy the, the dirt. So here's how this changed, and I, and I ultimately called my program the Reload Series. Um, and, and you don't need me to do it. Um, it. It can be done by anybody source seed. But essentially, the way that I've worked the reload series is I'm what I'm looking to do. First of all, my goal is I'm really looking to cycle solar energy 
during the growing season to boost my fall hunting plots. Now, let that sink in for a minute. I had to take it. I had to use context. I had to adapt it for the deer world. I say, okay, we're not harvesting grain to run over the scale and sell, but our cash crop is a big old fat slobber and rotten mature buck, period. Yes. So how can I produce more of those jokers while following these principles? So I'm saving up essentially all my nutrients. I'm repriming the soil. I think Gabe was the first one to call it biological primer. It doesn't get any better than that term right there. That is that's such a cool term. Um, we're priming the soil, priming the biology, introducing what a diversity or plethora of, of micro, uh, microbiology and macro, the, the worms as well, need. So here's how it works. When you look at a plant, it's either an annual, biennial, perennial. Um, it prefers the seed, might prefer a certain temperature to germinate and grow. So I looked at the systems, and in my area, I looked at the soil temperatures. You know, you see that I've worked with some of the larger seed companies and helped them make the, the pretty map, colored map you see on the back of the bag that has planting dates from north to south. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't, you, nature doesn't work that way on a map. It, it's, it's different every year. So I thought to myself, okay, what if we hit the soil as soon as I can? In my part of the country, it's March, April. When the soil temps are hitting 55, you know, 50, 55 degrees, and I put some of those cool season plants in the ground. For me, it was like a, you know, I called it a spring reload. So this is the beginning of of the system. For me, it was spring trit, uh, spring barley, obviously all the legumes, the brassicas, you're going to love that. Um, You know, so we hit the major functional groups, all of them. Again, not necessarily looking to produce a deer food plot, but looking to prime the pump, so to speak. And then as the, you know, the soil temps warm up, you hit, what, 65, 68, you know, it's, it's pretty close to soybean planting time. Guys, you know, farmers cracks me up. They've already gotten all their corn in. Corn's a warm season grass. Doesn't want to be planted in March, April in Yankee country, but they do it anyway because they feel the pressure. So these guys, you know, their corn's in and now you're, you know, you're seeing soybeans pop and start to get planted. That's when the summer reload goes in. And my summer reload idea was to pasture crop or steal them from some of these guys, relay intercrop, take the no-till drill. My choice, um, you know, is a land pride for Great Plains, just what I've always used. I enjoy them. Fill the hopper with um, the green bin with summer warm season uh, annuals. Right. So you, you're going to see soybeans, you're going to see cowpeas, you're going to see uh, sorghum, you're going to see sorghum Sudan. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if I said soybeans, you're going to see forage corn, you're going to see Huban sweet clover, which is absolutely incredible for your bees, by the way. It's like one big giant buzz fest. It's pretty cool. And, and I'm drilling right into the pasture. So, in other words, and here, here's the cool thing I don't have cattle. I'm running my roller crimper ahead of my, my rig. So I've got the roller crimper on the front, the drill on the back, and I'm drilling these plants. Now, I get it. I, I understand that in order to kill the vascular system of a plant with a roller crimper, i.e. crimp terminate, it has to be like a straw, right? So we think buckwheat, we think cereal rye, 
Mm-hmm. Oats, although oats hate me when I, when I try to cook them, they absolutely I have this battle going on with oats. So my, my philosophy is, hey, I may not crimp, terminate even 30% of that spring planting. I don't care because I feel like I'm crimp terminating some, immediately cycling those nutrients back to the soil. I feel like my roller crimper, nature, when you, when you study nature, nature really likes um, uh, disturbance, destruction. It, it thrives. In that. It's, nature is very resilient. So when I run that roller crimper, it, it doesn't, you know, it's not exactly like a bison, but, and by the way, there are no buffalo here in, in North America or in the, in the States, they were bison. Uh, so this whole buffalo system thing, we, my biology background goes crazy when I hear buffalo, they're in Africa. Um, so I feel like it's, it's disturbing and, and manipulating the soil, almost like the hooves of cattle or bison. If I could get it to poop, I'd be thrilled, but I haven't figured that one out yet. <laughs> um, obviously, you could spread manure and you know do the whole do that whole deal. But so so you can see where the system's going. The the, the system, the reload system of relay intercropping or pasture cropping, <laughs> looked ugly to my kids when they when they went out to hunt. But what they didn't know is there was so much going on in that biological pump that the deer knew it. There's a lot of research now on nutrient density on how much you follow human nutrition, but we're starting to find that just because you eat your veggies doesn't mean you're getting the nutrient density we once got. And that's not a surprise to those of us who understand that most of our, all of our soils are degraded and will never be returned back to what they once were. So you're spending the whole growing season, spring, summer, sort of priming the pump, cycling that, harnessing the power, that solar energy. And in the fall, when you put fall reload in, again, which is a a multi-species cover crop, if you will, um, biological primer food plot, you see much more growth and you see much more attraction from deer. And, And it's, to me, it's one way to exponentially achieve what we're trying to achieve without having clients drop off the radar and just give up on the program. So, you know, when you think about these multi-species biological primers, if you will, you know, one of my blends has 17 different species and varieties and it's, you know, it's it's formed with, we're not just throwing this stuff together, right? You know, we think about how every plant can complement another plant, but we're also thinking about how that individual plant can contribute to the, our resource concerned with that specific field. So I, I'm not, I can't tell you how excited I am with this series. Now you may, you may have noticed you didn't hear anything about tillage. You didn't hear anything about synthetic fertilizer and you didn't even hear me terminate with chemicals. Now, some of my clients, I can't tell you who, but one of my clients said, Jay, I love your dirty plots. And I laughed and I said, dirty plots. I like it. So now we call them dirty plots. They're dirty to us. And this goes back to when you mentioned and you said it, it was your worst looking food plot ever. Um, to nature, to the wildlife, to the bees that you're trying to attract and birds, obviously the insects, it looked like somebody had come in there and remodeled. Yeah, it's it's, it's trying to understand that my appreciation of, let's say, art 
and my appreciation of a certain type of art is very different than what a white-tailed deer's appreciation of, of what this landscape or this art should look like. So I'm trying to reset what the expectation should be. That's a great point. Um, great, yeah. Great here's, here's, it, here's one of the things that I've been trying to wrap my head around when it comes to building out these blends that you're planting at different parts of the year. Um, I understand the desire to have diversity and I understand what that gets you where I worry or what I, what I just need to better understand is, is how to get the different and maybe this doesn't matter. What am I trying? I don't know how to phrase this question. What I, here's the thing, what I understood about food plotting and planting when I was just learning about this in the early days was there's mm-hmm. certain times a year, certain things should be planted and there's certain soil depths that certain things should be planted. So I knew, all right, mm-hmm. I want to plant brassicas. I need to have it on a firm seedbed. I need it to not get much more than a quarter inch in the soil. And, you know, I want to plant it in like early August, maybe that'll be ideal. So I would do a strip of brassicas and I plant it that that way. And then I wanted some oats out there, some cereal grains or something like that. And I knew it was better to plant that later in the summer. And I knew that mm-hmm. wanted to be deeper in the soil, maybe a half inch or an inch deep in the soil. So I'd come in and I would, in late August, or early September, I would plant that at a different time in a different way. And that would get me the best possible growth of each. Um, so that's how I used to do it. Now I'm trying to figure out, okay, now I'm trying to plant a blend. And in my blend, I see oats in that blend. I see brassicas in that blend. I see a whole bunch of other things. And now I'm planting it the exact same time, the exact same way. And I'm worrying, is that why I didn't see some things come up? Or should I be planting these in different ways? Or should I be like, how do we, how do you, does that matter anymore when I'm doing the diverse thing? Does it not matter? How do we account for it? Help me understand that whole thing. I can tell you what matters. If, If you have plants growing in the soil, and you do not have bare, naked, hungry, thirsty soil, I'm happy. The deer are happy. You're pumping carbon into the soil. And trust me, I've seen deer eat an awful lot of quote-unquote weeds, and we really haven't dove in on this word weeds yet, but um, deer will consume weeds for different medicinal purposes. And believe it or not, some of them are they're super nutrient dense. Um, I know I've studied, you know, herbal uh, medicine as you know someone who struggles with gut dysfunction and and tick bites. Um, and this stuff is amazing. And deer deer have this nutritional wisdom. Period. And we'll talk more about that too. But no, I you know, so so the, one of the first things you know I've heard since the early days, and this comes even from the food plot marketing companies, they would say, Jay, you can't plant, you can't drill out of, out of a no-till drill, multiple species of multiple of multiple sizes, varying sizes at depth. And that's hogwash. That I'm here to tell you, nature certainly doesn't, doesn't think that way. Um, and, and that to me suggests you sit behind the desk and never get out in the field and really play with what this equipment, that no-till drill you mentioned, this stuff is amazing, the things that it can do. So, you know, for example, (laughs) I've got um, some of these 17 and 20 and 29 weight blends, and a guy will say to me commonly, and I I don't even like putting them on social media just because I I never intended to get into 
the seed business. I, I consulted for seed companies. I've worked with them. Many of them are my friends. Um, I never wanted to get into the seed industry. I'm a consultant. I sell my knowledge. I sell my experience. But it pains me to see the nonsense that they're selling, not just the products. And some of the products are great. They're just not presented properly with, with the right uh, teammates, if you will. But this, this idea that you have to plant you know, clover at a different depth than soybean at a different depth than an oat. Yes, I agree. If you're planting a monoculture, you may have better stand density if you're precise, like a grain farmer. But there's nothing in nature precise. So guys used to say to me, all right, if I put this multiple species plant, my gosh, you've got brassicas in here, which, as you know, are tiny. Some of the clovers are even smaller. Mm-hmm. You've got oats, which kind of have their own shape. You have uh, cowpeas. You have soybeans. You have sun hemp. You have all this stuff in here that's just, you know, same point. That's got the cubiest seed in the world. These things are not going to grow. And that's, it just has not, it's never been the case for me. And I think, and I've studied this and tried to figure out why. And I think what happens, some of those larger seeded uh, seeds, the larger seeds will germinate with all this power and they'll blow a rivet or a divot um, or a furrow in the soil, tiny it'll be, but they'll, they'll blow that furrow in the soil. They'll open it up to sunlight and those tiny seeds like clover also germinate and come up with them. Now, it's, it's, for me anymore, it's not even so much as growing a 24-inch tall plant that looks great for photos. It's just putting the seeds in the ground because the soil will give you what the soil needs. In other words, I had a client the other day say to me, this, this new field that I want you to look at, I'm going to Alabama here soon to look at it, it's just full of a whole host of weeds. I'm going to kill them right before you come. And I said, that's like giving me a book with blank pages. I won't know what to do. Yeah. Please don't do that. And you know, if, if once you learn, trust me, I was the weed. And I, I've got clients and friends and my family members will tell you we've got a long uh, driveway up to our house. And I used to make all the plots look per- perfect and phenomenal for those who come and go. And I would stop the vehicle on the way to dinner, run out in the middle, and pull a weed out of my soybean plot because it embarrassed me, right? And there's a lot of guys who do this. Now, I look at this differently, that we are telling me something. And, and you know, a lot of these, Regen, Ray Archuleta and Gabe and, and Dr. Alan Williams, who's phenomenal uh, when he speaks about weeds, have taught me, no, 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 read the weeds. And, and when you go back to the ancient literature, I mean, I've got a book here written in the 40s or 50s, I believe it is, that teaches farmers how to read the weeds. I saw the goldenrod that you guys were, mm, I think yeah. you were with uh, an apiary gentleman in one of your back 40. And, uh, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the goldenrod is like a book. I mean, it tells us so much about what's going on in that soil. So... Didn't mean to get off way off in the weeds, but uh, <laughs> no, literally, that's, that's it's good stuff. I want to I want to get one more tactical question in on that whole diversity and planting. So so if it's okay, we're planting all these different things. You're saying you're making me feel better that I shouldn't feel bad about the fact that it all didn't come in perfectly the way it should. That's kind of to be expected. But when I'm actually out there using the drill, right? It's the first time I ever used a drill. 
And I'm mm-hmm. trying to just I'm trying to figure out, okay, I've got to adjust for seed size. I can adjust the depth and then I can calibrate based off of how much seed per acre. Um, do I err on the too deep and too much, or do I err on the too little and too shallow? I mean, if I'm planting all these well, different sizes of seeds, um, how do you determine how deep you should set it, all that kind of stuff, when you know that something's not going to be ideal at that depth? Like, what's the safest route? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a great question. And, and here's where the art kind of comes in, right? So, you know, for those of us, when I got into no-tilling, I was working on a second or third generation farm, not my family, but the previous uh, that had been plowed for years. So it looked like Kansas. The Dust Bowl had nothing on us. It was crusted <laughs> over. It was hard. You, you really could bounce basketball on it. So the learning curve and the art of using a no-till drill is such that it causes a lot of people to get discouraged and give up and quit. And, and I mean, these are big ag farmers, not just food plotters. So initially, you've got to work. You know, when I bought my first drill, it, I couldn't get the seed. I couldn't plant a soybean for the life of me. I couldn't get my cutting cultures deep enough in my encrusted soils. And when I called the folks at Great Plains Land Pride out in Kansas, they laughed and they said, your soil look like ours. You're, you guys are supposed to have good soils. <laughs> Your soils are crusted. They're hard. And I think the warranty max was like two or 300 pounds of added suitcase weight or any weight on either side. And the gentleman there said, listen, we will honor, based on what we see, we will honor your warranty. I want you to put 400 pounds on each side. And I thought to myself, good God, 400 pounds. That's, that's going to be a heavy sucker. So I went and I did it. Um, I added some suitcase weights and I got to the depth that I needed. So, and I've seen honestly 90 to 95% of my clients who pick up a no-till drill and start fresh. That's one of the biggest issues they face is initially your soils are dead and crusted. There's no life in them. There's no aggregation. There's no infiltration. There's no biology. There's no armor. And you practically need swords cutting through it, right? So, Kate, um, Kate, I'm talking about Kate. Soils are, are when you think your your uh, shovel. I haven't seen you guys think a shovel. Maybe you have, but I didn't watch all your episodes. I want to see somebody sink a spade or a shovel into the back forty. Drive it down in there, smell it, feel it, look at it, and and look for aggr- aggregates, soil aggregates. Biology creates a sticky glue, glomalin binds soil particles together. So your soils should look and feel like chocolate cake. That's why I was thinking cake. Yeah. When when you when you dig down in there, it should be I when I walked on David Brandt, David Brandt was um, you know, he's a, a no-tiller from the 70s. Um when I walked on his his soil, you almost feel like you're on not a trampoline, but maybe one of those um those those pads, launch pads, or something that the <laughs> yeah. gymnasts use. You know, yeah. it's just like wow, you feel it under your boots. And after being on so many properties, I can walk out on the field, and, and I, I probably don't even need to sink my spade into the soil. But um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question or not. But <laughs> it seems like that, it's that's, that's, it takes some figuring out, and that I that I guess I shouldn't feel well, bad that I didn't have it right the first time. 
Absolutely. And here's the thing with a no-till drill, right? Every time you get a different blend, you really need to look at it and say, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. Just, you know, look at the soil situation. And, you know, I find with most of my blends, this reload series, spring, summer, fall, if we get about a half inch, even three quarters of an inch deep, we're, we're going to have a fantastic looking feel. So, you know, I know everybody hates the word calibration. I have clients who will say to me, what drill do you own? I want to buy it because I know you have notebooks full of calibrations for all right. of your seats. And that cracks me up. And I used to be that way too. Now I'll take a blend and I'll calibrate it because things change. Soil conditions change. The drill, even my 3P uh, 606NT unit will change from the dozens that my clients are buying. So take it out there. And, and you know, if you don't know how to calibrate it, look, you know, look that up. There's an app actually on how to cal. I've never used it, um, but they say it's pretty good. But just calibrate that blend, weigh what you get out of your drill. And that's the only way to know, you know, how, how accurate you are when it comes to cranking out the right amount of seed. Now on depth, again, I don't care if you have, you know, from the very smallest of small right on up to the large seed. I find that if you plant at a half inch uh, to close, closing in on three quarters of an inch, you'll be just fine. And, you know, the other funny thing is I get guys call me all the time to say, hey, send me a picture of what this summer reload looks like. And, and uh, you know, early on I said, I can't because I'd be lying to you that, you know, you're going to assume that your plot is also going to look like that plot, but that's not the case. Your soils are going to be completely different than my soils. They're going to favor different species and varieties in that blend than mine right, do. Right. And it's going to physically look different than mine. I've gotten to the point now where I just said, here you go. Here's one of mine. Um, you know, and nobody's really said, hey, mine don't look like yours. But um, so, so that's, you know, kind of what you're seeing when for, for a guy like me, the, the food plot result you got from your zero synthetic no-till high HD, high diversity plot, man, I'm just like, I'm down on my, my knees in the dirt looking, at, okay, your soil's pumping a lot of uh, carbon or maybe it's depleted of carbon. And that's why it's, you know, really favoring these oats and these grasses. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. 
because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you that um, the soil on the back 40 is definitely not like chocolate cake <laughs> it is <laughs> it is hard and rocky and and so tough to work with i, I i've typically put in like fake scrape trees you probably you know mm-hmm. people do that all the time right i would sure. i cut down a small tree or something and sink a hole mm-hmm. in with post hole diggers and i physically cannot use post hole diggers to get more than a couple <laughs> inches deep um so we had to drive well, tea posts be, in the ground it would be to my goal that. and like five years to be able to take one arm and just slam a T-post in the ground. Right? Yeah, that'd be, that'd be amazing. So I think that's a great illustration of what we're working with. Um, yeah. You, you talked about your reload series and, and you've got a spring planting and then a summer planting and then a fall planting. That's different than most of the other rotations I've heard about um, from folks, whether that are trying <laughs> it in the hunting world or like a Gabe Brown type that I've read about is usually mm-hmm. they've got like a, a late spring, early summer planting, and then a fall planting. So why have you added sure. a third into the mix? What's that do for you? Well, there's there's a lot of reasons. Number one, like I said, I'm trying to prime the pump as quick as I can to to get to where you know I need to get. And obviously for my clients, what it all boils down to is, as my friend at Peterson's Boat Hunting, my editor of my white sales column, Christian Berg, always tells me, come on, man, these guys want uh, target-rich environments. If your article doesn't get me more target-rich environments, I'm kicking it back. So I'm trying to figure out a way to, to you know, make them happier as quick as I can, number yeah. one. Uh, number two, guys like Gabe, aren't their, their cash crop is not wildlife. It's not turkeys. It's not deer. It's not quail. It's not pheasants. Their cash crop is a grain or uh, an animal, you know, pastured protein, if you will. So... What I'm what I'm doing is is just continually. I, I try to again in context. I try to adapt those those six soil principles into what I'm doing, but yet have the biggest impact on my clients' fall hunts. So while there's other things going on in that, um, you know, I'm not planting the grain that I'm going to harvest. Honestly, if if my field are full of every cereal grain you can imagine sporadically and sparsely scattered with legumes of different types and and species. I mean, to me, that diversity is what wildlife craves. And when I look at a monoculture, and I'm, again, I'm not picking, like, if I say a monoculture soybean plot, by no means am I picking on the soybean breeder or grower. Soybean is an incredible plant. Um, the same can be said for clover, but unfortunately, too much of a good thing is a bad thing. So 
let me just, I know you, you were driving home on some, some really good takeaway points and something that a guy can go out there and actually do. I'd love to talk about the reload series all day long. And, and nobody needs me in my reload series. My goal is to educate people so they don't need me to blend products for them. They can go do it themselves. But um, where was I going with that? When when you look at, I can't remember where I was going with that. Anyway, well, well I, I was asking, <laughs> I was asking why you added that spring planting. While usually I see people planting something in the summer and then it grows for three months and then they drill over top of that for the fall, and then the fall blend continues on into the spring and it greens up and then they crimp that and plant their summer. So I, I was trying mm-hmm. to understand why you added that third that early, early spring planting to it. And, and you were kind of yeah. saying that. So, so the spring, um, you know, the farmers and the ag guys, when I started down this path, they said, well, this is easy, Jay, you start in the fall, right? They tend to think of starting in the fall because they've harvested their crops and now they're, they're planning for next year. Well, our, we don't really do that. Our cash crop, um, you know, occurs late fall, November, you know, even over, over winter. So my goal was to just keep keep pumping all of those different plant types in the soil and really let the soil reveal what the soil wants. Now, you know, we, we do plant. Um, hairy veg was a plant I never, ever used. Everybody told me it's invasive. I've yet to see that. Um, cereal rye is another plant as as a food plotter, I shouldn't say I never, I rarely ever used it. Now I fall plant in October, an awful lot of cereal rye and hairy vetch. And I don't know if you've seen, you know, most know that I'm, I'm in love with my roller crimper. To me, a roller crimper has changed, completely changed the game. And when a guy gets rid of a roller crimper, it typically means he's a quitter. He's lazy. Or, as in Gabe Brown's case, it just it, it didn't fit his model. But most food plotters can employ a roller crimper and change the game on the weed, uh, the weed suppression situation big time. So, you know, these same plots, you know, fall reload is weighted a little bit heavier towards the brassicas. And then I have a product that you can't get online. I don't, I don't really sell it to clients, but I don't really sell it called Fall Nourishment. And fall nourishment was designed by the guys who said, hey, I want to come in the spring, late winter, early spring, with some serious ground cover, right? So one of the reasons to answer your question about the spring reload is many of my clients who wanted to start this process made the decision now, right, during the off season. And, they, and we looked at their fields and we said, here's the problem. This corn field that's not interceded is going to be naked. And there will be no soil armor come spring, right? That's a disaster for soil. That is not a functional soil. So we said, okay, let's get some of these, let's get you started. Let's prime the pump and get these early cool season plants in the ground. Hey, listen, if you had done a good job of planning in the fall, like you said, and you put in, you know, a high, high density of um, cereal rye and hairy vetch, you probably won't need spring reload. You're probably going to rather look to delay your planting like I do. Sometimes I plant my beans in July, um, you know, maybe even June. If I let that, those biennials 
kick in high gear in the spring, they'll get to a crimpable stage where I can lay that mat down and it looks like a shag carpet, just suppressing weeds and really doing a lot of things, maintaining ideal soil temperatures for germination, habitat for insects. The bees love it. Um, you know, it, it just goes on and on. What You talk about the crimper a lot and I'm super intrigued with it. It makes a lot of sense. I don't have one yet. They're very expensive. What do you do? What do you do if you can't afford a crimper? Or is there is there is there any alternative? Or is it one of those things you say, you know what? Don't buy a big screen TV this year. Save your money and buy one. What's well, what's the solution there? That's a great. You know, I was having a steak with one of my clients, and he he said, "So how many of these crimpers crimpers are guys buying?" And I said, "No, the guys with the budget buy it. Love it. I've never heard a single complaint other than I wish this thing could poop." <laughs> the, the crimpers are expensive. And I said that to him and he, this is a business owner. And he looked at me and he smiled. And he said, Hey, if you're going to do a job, man, you got to bring the right tools to the job. Right. And he said, it's, it's more cost effective for me to ride my bike to school or to work or to town, but it's easier to jump in the car and get there. So mm-hmm. I, I get it. There's no way around it. Um, you know, we, I'm working um, with I and J in uh, Pennsylvania here, he's, he's cranking out. We're, we're now making a black drop time roller crimper that looks super cool. It's the same retail cost as uh, the crimpers from Jake Blank at I&J. And, and by the way, Jake is, um, you know, they were one of the, they were the first ones to really take along with the Rodale Institute, these designs, the Chevron pattern and say, Hey, holy smokes. If we step on some of these um, straw like stems, we can, it was the organic guys who wanted to get away from, you know, the, the caustic chemicals. So yeah, they're expensive. We now have, we're cranking them out right now. They're getting painted. We've got three, four and five foot flip over models for the ATV and the UTV. And these things are very expensive. If you've ever seen the process, they're very expensive to make. Um, and anything that's obviously expensive to make is going to be quite expensive on the retail side of things. You know, some of these ATV units are $2,600, um, sometimes even a little bit less depending on the size. Uh, my clients are buying, you know, 8 to 12-foot crimpers for, you know, $48,000, $6,000 depending on, you know, the particular. So while I'll agree they can be costly, uh, man, I'm a huge fan of a lot of the gear, the mountain gear um, today, and you know the merino wool, that stuff is not cheap. But I'm here to tell you, yeah. if I go to Eastern Montana and I'm on the Powder River, one day it could be 94 degrees and it could snow that night. And when I've sweated all day in my first light merino wool, all I do is hang it next to my bed, and in the morning it's bone dry. So I don't care yeah. what that costs. To be completely honest with you, <laughs> it's, it's it's replaced all of my investment. Costs, so. Yeah. Yeah. I hear what you're saying there. Now there's some folks that have, uh, there's kind of a little underground movement that you can read about on various online threads where people kind of are trying to adapt some of these principles to a super budget methodology, like the throw and mow idea Mm -hmm. where they're putting stuff down and mowing the weed growth over top of it and using that to kind of get, again, I'm sure it's not as good as going all the way, but they're trying to achieve similar results with less gear. Um, Have you seen anything about that? Have you ever tried anything there? Um, Or is that, you know, barking up the wrong tree? Yeah. A good friend of mine, Tim Coker, 
um, who is, you know, he's done some filming for me and he's been on the podcast. He set out to, he's very mechanically inclined. He set out to make his own, you know, roller crimper and, and test some of his own stuff. And, you know, he's used called the Packers. Um, I just saw somebody share a video the other day on YouTube. It was a, a uh, I think it was a Honda Civic. They were driving it through the field, driving over <laughs> all this stuff to crimp it down. Now, you know, I, I think any, I love it. I love it, first of all. Anything that you are doing, that meets the six principles, which everything you just mentioned did. Um, can we expect the efficiency of a broadcast and mode plot to be that of a drilled and print? No, but as long as your expectations are such going into the deal, I'm okay with that. You know, and I've, I've seen people in gardens take what looks like one of the blades attach it to or make your version of that blade right you, you want it to be blunt not sharp because the goal is not to cut the stem but instead crimp the stem right um and preferably every six or seven inches so there's multiple crimps but one crimp usually does it but i've seen people in gardens take two ropes hold their ropes up off their shoulders almost like a swing and step on a you know a two by that has a blunt um, blade on the bottom and literally, you know, step and walk, step and walk and crimp terminate. So yeah, I think it can be done. It's just a matter of, you know, how much time you have and manpower and, and what your budget is. But I guess for those, and I don't care where you buy a roller crimper, but for those contemplating, is it really worth $4,000 or $6,000 or, you know, $2,800, depending on what you buy? 110%. Yes. No one has given me a legitimate reason to dislike a roller crimper. Fair enough. I uh, hope I'll get my hands on one at some point and uh, we'll be able to test uh, test it all out because it sure sounds like a great way to go about it. Now, you, you've mentioned numerous times throughout our conversation <laughs> about nutrient density and the selective nature of how deer feed and mm-hmm. how kind of how maybe the the cash crop, the end result that we're looking for after doing all this work to put in our our food plots in a different kind of way that's healthier for the soil, healthier for Mm -hmm. the plants and the pollinators and everything that does result in a target-rich environment. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about nutrient density, about the things you've learned um, along those lines? Absolutely. And this is is good stuff. And this is where I've really collaborated with Fred Provenza. For anyone who's never read his book, Nourishment, what a what an incredible book. His, he was on my podcast last, and uh, it's just the numbers are through the roof of people listening. I'm so thankful for that because he has so much knowledge to spread. But when you talk nutritional density, I think the stuff going on in human nutrition is incredible. My wife gets so pissed at me because you know, she loves eating veggies. She's all about health. And she'll go to the store and buy spring mix. And I look at it and I laugh and I say, do you realize you'd have to eat four of those salads to have the same nutrient density they had in 1940? Here's the study. It's been done. And, you know, it's true. There are researchers studying the veggies in the grocery store and they're finding, you know, meat. It's incredible. You have to eat twice as much meat to get, you know, the same uh, nutrients you once got. So that, you know, I, I actually hit that um, industry before I came to the deer idea of this nutritional density in forages, because again, 
I've got this weakened immune system from Lyme disease, and I realized quickly that I need to focus on what I eat. So here's the deal. The current food plotting model is really easy. It's, it's, it's foolproof. I mean, everyone can grow biomass, um, but does this biomass really, truly grow big, mature bucks with you know, nutrient-dense plantscapes? I don't think so. We could do tissue analysis, and we have. And, you know, we're all about protein. Well, I'm here to tell you that there are, we have more problems with too much protein in plants and animals than we have with too little protein. This protein craze has got to go away. We just don't need that much. Um, I get a salad frequently at a local restaurant. And the waitresses always say to me, do you want any protein for that salad, meaning fish or chicken or steak? And I finally said the other day, do you realize there's enough protein? Plants have protein too. Stop asking me that question. And uh, <laughs> she just kind of laughed and said, yeah, I guess you're right. But so, you know, the, the way that we're managing these food plots and, and conventional ag for that matter is so very detrimental to the soil. Um, let's, let's, let's convert it to a real world wildlife situation. You know, with clovers, deer clover. We've been breeding clover to make it deer clover for 20 years, 30 years, whatever. <laughs> Brassicas, same way. Two fantastic groupings of plants. Love them, always have them. Would never plant them alone. Uh, when you pump too much nitrogen in your soil with legumes, specifically clover, we'll talk about clover, you're throwing that carbon nitrogen way out of whack. And I can remember Gabe telling me one time, just go observe some of these plots. And I'm not going to tell you what to do. That's, that's not my job. That's your job as a biologist. Just go look at it. And I remember sitting there looking at one. Actually, it was a client in Pennsylvania. We jumped off the ranger. And I walked out of the plot. And he said, Jay, I just frost-seeded this. It was probably February, March. I can't remember. Just frost-seeded this. I know you see a lot of bare spots. Um, this is, you know, the stolons did very well in this clover. It's spreading, it's growing, but I had some weed issues last year. So as a result, I have some bare spots. He frost seeded. I said, perfect. That's a great start. Here's what I want you to do. Crank up that new drill you just bought. Go get yourself some spring triticale, spring barley, spring oats. I don't care. Get them all. Stick them in that drill full rate and come through here and drill this quickly. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, it's not time to get the drill out yet. I said, well, that would, you know, Mother Nature would disagree with that, but just try it. And a couple months later, he called me up and he said, I see what you did. I said, what do you mean? He said, that plot where I put the cereal grains in, instead of having, I hate the term, weeds, unwanted plants, grasses, I've got spring trit. I think he planted spring trit, if I'm not mistaken. And the deer and the turkeys are absolutely annihilating this fresh, succulent plant while my clover is spreading through stolons. And obviously, the, the clover seeds that he frost-seeded are also supplementing the field. And what he ended up with at the end of the season was a beautiful clover plot that I would be lying if I said it didn't have unwanted invasive grass weeds. But, man, we certainly used our heads. And what's called a cultural weed management uh, strategy, which that's kind of important to talk about too. Uh, man, I'm just going crazy. So, so when we went to college, you know, we we learned about you know here's how you control weeds, Mark. So you can 
mechanically control them, like when you studied, this, yep. you know, uh, the, the Great Plains, right? Dragon plow constantly, constantly just disrupt the soil. You can chemically control weeds, or you can culturally control weeds. And I can remember saying, we would cover the mechanical, the chemical. I said, wait a minute, what's this cultural stuff? Never understood it when I was in my teens and 20s. Cultural weed management. And then I finally got, oh, crap, this is actually using our heads, a little bit of planning. So we might be putting in a suppression, uh, a smother crop or a cover crop in the fall that's going to suppress those weeds in the spring. Takes a little bit of thought, right? Uh, That's where it's at when it comes to weed. and, And that's probably why I get so excited with roller crimper. Because I've seen, if, if, I think, who was it? There was a gentleman who, who tugged me on Facebook from Nebraska who said, I think Jason would agree, there's no better feeling in crushing a five foot tall stand. It could be multi species, but hairy vetch, crimson clover, cereal rye, oats, and just watching this stuff form. I'm not kidding you, a six, seven, eight inch shag carpet weed suppression mat and then you hear the local farmer who makes a living uh selling grain complaining about mayor's tail mayor's tail is and that would be like my high school football team locally who's not half bad playing one of the midget teams mayor's tail is a joke yeah it has beat us in the chemical game but it's a relatively easy seed to suppress if we just think ahead how do you do that because I have a whole lot of mare's tail on the back 40 <laughs> that I want to to take a new tact with this coming right. spring, whether it be with food plots or trying to get native grasses out there, switchgrass, different things like that. How do you deal with mare's tail without chemicals? So, so again, culturally, you have to think ahead of it. Here's, here's the thing about mare's I'm going to warn you, it's going to get probably worse than, uh, it's going to get worse faster than it's going to get better. And that is because most guys who go to no-till quit, especially the ag guys, uh, because mare's tail really proliferates once you go. There are certain weeds, weed seeds that do better when you plow, and there are certain weed seeds that just crank full bore when you no-till. And and you'll see that weed profile shift as you change from cultivation to no-tilling, and everybody likes to point the finger at the no-till and say it just doesn't work. So you have to study the weed that, okay, I love football, right? I love, I love the idea of coaching football. I just don't like the parents um, and most of the other coaches. <laughs> yeah. But so, so when a good, I've studied a lot of really well-known coaches and they'll often talk about finding the point of weakness, right? So yeah, you may have a running back that can run a 4-240. He may be extremely talented at, at patient reading holes. He may have, you know, a hell of a line over on the right side, but you know, if you don't have a center who can do his job, or if you don't have a pulling tackle or guard who can help block, he's useless. And that's really kind of how we, if you don't understand your weakness and the opponent's weakness, you will never win the battle against weeds. So there, you know, SARE, S-A-R-E, is a really good resource um, for folks to look at and learn about the weed that you're facing and figure it out. Is this an annual? Is this a perennial? What, at what soil temperatures and when does this weed germinate? So, for instance, in a weed that germinates in June, July, 
it's, it's too late, man. It, it, I've won. If I go into spring with a heavy dance weed suppression mat, thanks to my roller crimper and a little bit of forethought, that weed, it doesn't have a chance in hell of competing with me. Now, don't call me and tell me that you got a few of them. I get it. That's because they're right now they're on steroids. They're, they're super active. They've figured out the way, out a way to get around our, our chemical herbicides and become resistant. You will still have them, but what you'll find is there's a threshold with weeds. Um, God, I'm going to get beat by some of the guys in the regenerative world for using that weeds word, but you know you almost have to. But you, you'll get ahead of it. It's just a matter of time, and you know constantly planning and keeping the soil armored, keeping the soil covered, and uh, you know again you'll you'll. You'll adjust your tolerance and your threshold as well at a certain point. I mean, I know guys who say to me, hey, I'm not coming back to your farm again to help you until you kill all that ragweed, right? Because they're, you know, <laughs> they're snotty and they just Sneezing, can't breathe. Yeah. And, uh, usually they blame the uh, uh, the goldenrod because you can see it. It's yeah. showy. It's not the goldenrod. It's the ragweed. But. So, yeah, culturally, you have to you have to just do some research on the weed. Um, find out what it prefers. And let me give you another example on weeds. Um, I get a lot of these cockleburrs and, you know, things like that that stick to my dogs, stick to our coats when you're hunting. It's a broadleaf. And one thing I did was I shoved plantain and some other broadleaves in the ground constantly throughout the growing season where I had uh, I mean, you could look down from the tractor and just see these these seeds, millions and millions of them. And, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, my gosh, next year it's going to be a disaster, right? Um, but you could plant similar plants and culturally win that battle. So so what about the scenario where you have a <clears throat> a quote-unquote weed or, or really what about a grassy, dense field of some kind of – some kind of grass, and I want to plant something new there. I want to start this whole process. I want to plant a diverse blend of food plots, but I've got a great big nasty field of, of I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. So you're thinking about a some kind of grass. grass field that yes, that's just a, you know almost an ankle breaker when you when you start out with it and you walk over it, right? Yeah. So historically, so, you would you know, yeah. use one of those other forms of, of weed control to then clear it out and, and plant something new. But how do I, is there any way to do that otherwise? Cause right now I can't plant anything in it. I could, you know, chemically burn it. I could burn it, burn it. But yeah, and listen, what do you I, think? I don't, I don't want to, you know, I'm against the overuse of chemical herbicides. Now I've, I've chosen on my property not to use them simply because of the impact they have on my health. Um, and, and also on the, the ecosystem health, but I, I see no problem if you want to use a little bit to get started. Um, would I do it? Probably not. Uh, the way I would work with it and every field is different, right? I would obviously look at the field, see what I have to, to deal with, think about my resource concerns. And I would likely try to get ahead of that in the, the fall growing season with a biennial, a biennial that can compete with that the next growing season. I'm going to throw a bunch of diversity. I'm going to throw a bunch of plant life at it and drill right into it. Um, I'll probably crimp it in the fall when I drill as well. 
And in some situations, just ran into this in um, Ohio. We have found, I've been talking to Rick Haney about this as well in Texas, the soil scientist. When you're, when you're gunning and you're aiming for diversity, the one way to kill that is by plowing the field. So what Rick did was he took one of his research plots and he said, okay, what if I lightly disc it just to kind of, you know, some of us want to level a field out that's been rutted maybe from the past or, you know, we're just starting off the square one like you're saying. And Rick, Rick told me one day on the phone, he said, hey, you're going to love this. While deep tillage, you know, chisel, moldboard plowing, yeah, destructive, never do it, get rid of it. He said, I did some light disking on a soil and then just absolutely hammered it with diversity just to see if I could combat that light soil disturbance. He said, and I got my CO2 burst, which CO2 burst is nothing more than uh, it tells us how much biology is breathing in, in that room. He said, that CO2 burst uh, after really like one season got back to where it was. So I always tell guys, you know, don't take everything you hear literally if you've if you've gone through all this you've tried to no-till it maybe you're avoiding chemicals maybe you did a light application of, of glyphosate or 2,4-D or whatever you selected and it didn't work um I, I you know i still sold my disc but i i firmly believe sometimes we may need to reintroduce a light disc um, again a lot of this is kind of uncontested when rick told me that i was I was surprised. Actually, I had just sold my disc. <laughs> um, but yeah, once you get your field to where, you know, they're, they're plantable, right? I mean, some guys are starting with saplings and early successional habitats. Now, obviously, you have to get in there and, you know, crush some brush and, and probably manipulate the soil a little bit. Yeah, there's... Um there's always the context and there's always different things needed for different circumstances. That, that makes a lot of sense. We somehow have talked for almost two hours and I still have like 20 different things I was curious to talk about, <laughs> which we haven't reached. So I feel like, yeah, we probably need to wrap it up. Um, sure, absolutely. But we might have to have a part two someday, but I guess before we, before we do shut it down, is there any burning thing on your mind that we haven't talked about that you'll just be, that you'll be sitting at night tonight, staying awake because you didn't get to mention it, or do you feel good about where we're leaving things? Man, that's a great question. I think um, the, the for me, yeah, it, it, and you may have heard Gabe say this. What changed the game for me before I do anything on my property, on my farm, in my field, anywhere, I just stop. And I've got kids. I've got multiple companies that I run, and I'm busy. I travel, and I just observe for a minute and I think to myself, does this fall within those six principles? There are cascading effects all the time in nature. It's never just one thing you're manipulating and changing. <clears throat> so am I doing more to pump carbon and into the soil, right? That's always my, I wanna pump carbon. People are paying for you to sequester carbon in your soil. Think about that for a minute. Could you get paid on the back 40? By some nonprofit group, a per acre basis based on the amount of carbon you're sequestering, that's cool to me. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Another income source. And you're probably not going to get rich, but hey, you know, it's an income source. You're stacking another income. 
So I think, you know, for me, it's all about carbon. Carbon is the driver of the system. It is the currency of the system. And, um, you know, again, it's just, am I, am I promoting the life in the soil? We, we tend to walk on it and think it's just some dirty medium for growing plants. Not, not at all true. Um, and, and I will I'll finish with this. As when I mentioned carbon, the term carbonomics comes to mind. Um, I work with Keith Burns along with Keith, Brian Burns, his, his brother. They own Green Cover Seed. When I talk to people about some of my ideas, everybody laughed at me. Everybody told me, I'm, you know, going crazy. Keith and the guys at Green Cover Seed said, hey, what you're doing is exactly what we do. and We love the idea. Come join us. They helped me source everything from wildflowers for honeybees to the plants I'm talking about in the Reload series. Keith did my favorite YouTube video of all time. If you Google Keith Burns, B-E-R-N-S, Carbonomics. And I mean, people who aren't even into Regen, um, I took micro and macro econ, economics in college and loved it. Most of the frat guys in there with me, it must have been an elective, uh, slept or didn't show up. <laughs> um, when he discusses this, it almost makes you understand why our economy is thriving so much right now, because he simplifies economics into a dirt soil kind of way. And he talks about carbon. So highly recommend you watch this video. I'll check that out. It sounds, uh, sounds very interesting. All this stuff has been fascinating to me and, uh, it's been really fun to, to dive into it and start trying some things you know, hitting, hitting and missing here and there, but uh, excited for you too, <laughs> to learn from it and grow from it. And uh, this conversation is definitely going to help. So Jason, thank you for that. And Absolutely. if folks want to learn more, if people want to learn more from you, want to learn more about your products or services, all of that, where can they go to find it? Oh, geez, all over. You know, I, I love when people just call. I try my best to answer calls. Um, you know, my cell phone is just 570 Four zero six four. Please understand when I get paid to consult, you know they get my undivided attention all day and sometimes even in the evening um, with dinners and such. My my email is Jason at droptinewildlife.com. Um, that's probably the easiest. I can answer them at all times. And then I'm I'm not a huge fan of social media because it just it it gets to be a lot after a while. But uh, we I created a closed group called Regenerative Wildlife agriculture on facebook um that is fun because we kind of push the envelope on some of this stuff and then uh, of course my my consulting company which uh, has been around for 19 years is just droptimewildlife.com and uh, my seed company the drop time seed company is droptimeseed.com and i need to slow down but uh the podcast which is really my first labor of love um doesn't have a website. There's, I am on Facebook with the Drop Time Podcast. And um, other than that, I just realized I have way too much going on. <laughs> That's a lot. But it's, uh, it sounds like a lot of good stuff. So I'll be sure to uh, be staying up on all of that myself. And I'm sure a lot of listeners will too. So Jason, thank that. you so much for your time. Yes, sir. Thank you. And uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future. Yeah, I'm going to keep picking your brain. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. And that's going to do it for us today. Thank you all for tuning in. I know this is 
different than the usual. This isn't your how to kill a buck kind of episode, which I know is is always helpful, but sometimes we got to think about these bigger picture issues. And I think this is a really interesting way to do that. If you want to learn more, we do have a couple other podcast episodes that we did last year that cover some of this. There's one with Dr. Grant Woods. There's another one with the guys from Land and Legacy. Go back, check it out. There's one in the spring. There's one in the summer. Those are very interesting as well. Another resource that I recommend is a book called Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. This is one of the best books I've seen yet on this topic. It's it's very tactical, but also uses a story to take you through how you can go about utilizing these principles. So check that stuff out. And I think with that, we will shut her down. So thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.